every time I shed tears and the last past tears. On this episode, we talk to Heather Smith about Sybil Bear and Connie Converse. This is The Operative. I'm your host, Chris Williams. Thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. Oh, of course. Yeah. Thanks for asking me. I'm excited to tell other people about these ladies. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, to start off, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, my name is uh, Heather Kathleen Dunaway-Smith, all four of my names. Um, I'm an artist. That's kind of how I identify, but I, I do. Um, I'm a musician. I make music under the moniker of Bone and Bell. Um, it's typically me with like a rotating cast of folks, uh, and I make visual art. Um, and most recently I've been sort of focusing my efforts on mixed reality stuff, like augmented reality, um, creating like interactive experiences and stuff. So, uh, but yeah, uh, been doing Bone and Bell for about, honestly, not even that long, like maybe like 11 years, something like that. I was a latecomer to my musical expression. I'd always kind of like written songs and stuff, but uh, hadn't directly pursued it until um, I sort of stumbled upon a few different things. But like the PRF songwriting competition kind of showed me that like uh, people might like what I was doing and sort of gave me like a low risk environment to sort of try on songwriting. And uh, yeah. And then from there, I kind of gained confidence and was like, yeah, I'm going to be a musician. And so then I went for it and uh, started releasing albums and stuff. Uh, so you wanted to talk about Connie Converse and Sybil Bear. Yeah, we hope it's Bear. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if, so, if it isn't, someone tell us in the comments. <laughs> uh, she's still alive, I guess we could, we could ask her, but I think she's a little bit of a, an introvert, so she might be hard to contact. But yeah, I did. Um, I'm kind of breaking the rules. I realized that most people like pick one person, but it was kind of hard for me to decide uh, plus, uh, these ladies only have like one album each, uh, so figure we can talk a little bit about both of them. And there's also a lot of like overlap between the two, like thematically. So like I thought they would be a good pairing. I actually didn't discover them until the last few years because their work wasn't even released until like the, the late aughts. Um, but both of them, you know, created uh, music and uh, Connie Converse is like from the 50s and uh, Sybil Bear was recording in the 70s, but their music was totally undiscovered until the last few years. Um, and there's actually like a whole, um, a whole collection of female artists from the 50s, 60s and 70s that are suddenly being sort of uh, rediscovered and like given their, their proper props. Um, but uh, yeah, they're all kind of ahead of their time, but there's like, you know, Vashti Bunyan, uh, Linda Perhax, um, uh, Annie Briggs, there's a lot of them, but uh, Sybil Bayer and Connie Converse are definitely part of that crew. So yeah, they're, um, so they're undiscovered female songwriters from, you know, those time periods. They've, they've both got kind of like a very unvarnished thing going, which I really appreciate. It's like um, not necessarily minimalism, but you can just tell that like every musical decision um, was very carefully uh, sort of exacted. And, and also um, 
both of them, uh, the records that are available now are actually collections of real, real, real to real recordings that they did at home. Um, and that were then, you know, later put together by other people and released. Uh, so I think that's kind of interesting as like a form of documentation for, for the music of, of these women. And also in particular, like these uh, women talk about the female experience uh, in their respective time periods, which is interesting because it's not necessarily something that was like, you know, commonly talked about like in art, especially in music in this way. So, uh, so yeah, that's why I decided to, to talk about these two. So uh, when did you, when did you first discover them or which one did you discover first? I think I discovered Sybil Bayer first and it was probably around like 2008. Um, maybe actually, maybe even later than that, it might've been like 2010 or something. And I don't really remember how I discovered her, but I remember when I discovered her, which was, um, well, have you ever had like an album that like enters your life at just the right time? And it's like the only thing that you want to listen to for that period of time. So you just always associate it. It was that uh, basically. So it, it coincided with um, Jason's grandfather dying, who was uh, this man named Poppy, who was this like very beloved patriarch uh, of the family. So this was like a major sea change in his family that had been in this part of Arkansas for a really long time. So we went to Arkansas on this trip for the funeral and to be with his family. And we just listened to this album over and over and over and over again, like all the way driving down from Chicago to Arkansas and all the way back up and while we were there. And there was just something that was like, so, um, you know, if you listen to it, you can, you can hear the heartbreak in certain songs. So clearly that was like, you know, kind of the right time to listen to that sort of music, but also she talks really honestly about some hardship and like depression and stuff like that, but like always with like sort of an eye to uh, her recovering from it. So I don't know, there was like kind of a sense of like perspective that the album seemed to give me. And also her range is like perfect for my range. So I could just sing along with it, like to my heart's content and sort of like found peace through that. And uh, yeah, it was just really calming and interesting and um, it sort of coincided with, I'd already released some music at that point. So I was already kind of doing my thing, but like uh, I felt like a kindredness with her and the sort of songwriting that she was doing. I, it was pretty apparent to me that like, she wasn't really trying to be anybody else. Um, and so she was making like musical decisions that were like just wholly unique. Uh, and also I could kind of tell that like her songwriting stemmed from like, possibly anyway, this is my, my guess, like maybe she could, <laughs> Sybil, if you're out there, let me know about your process. But like, it seems like, it seems like some of her work is um, lyric and vocal driven. And she's made some of the song decisions and like the instrument decisions, like after that, or like to follow that. So she actually switches, um, she switches time signatures all the time in kind of an interesting way. Uh, like, so one of my like favorite songs of hers is um, The Color Green actually is like what the, the album uh, is titled. And she alternates between like, I think it's like, like 11, eight and like six, eight, I think like, and then like, you know, other songs like Whim, she kind of alternates between, she starts out in like 10, eight for like, like two measures and then she goes to like 12 eight and she like, and there's not this like, I don't know, it just creates this really interesting like swing 
that like, I think if you're not paying attention, it sounds so natural that you wouldn't really think that there is that sort of shift. But if you're really looking at it, it's like, whoa, like there's some really like complex things happening here. Um, so yeah, those were, those are some of the reasons that, that she stuck out to me. Um, but we're really lucky to have her music basically like she just recorded this stuff. She was an actress, I guess, like in Germany um, in the seventies. And she just happened to pick up a guitar and learn how to play. And she got like a reel to reel recorder in her living room. And she just started documenting her songs and sending them to her friends. And like, that was the, the extent of her ambition. <laughs> like she, you know, this was like, just completely for, for her and, you know, her circle. And then her son um, basically discovered all of the real, real tapes at some point and was kind of like blown away. Like, oh my God, mom, you're really good. <laughs> like we should, like the world should hear this maybe. Like, I think this is beautiful. I know I'm biased, but like maybe I should get this to some people who know and like see what happens. So he packaged him up and, and like sent him to Jay Mascus, um, uh, who's like, you know, the lead singer of Dinosaur Jr. and like the head of Orange Twin. And so Orange Twin put it out, like I think in 2006, something like that. Um, so clearly, you know, he heard like the songwriting gems that were that were on the album and uh, yeah, and that's it. That's all the music that we have of her. She's still alive living in Germany and has no like idea why people are interested in her apparently. She like totally like baffles her that like people care about her music, but there's been, um, yeah, I think a lot of people have found a lot of inspiration from, from her and her very unique voice, but. Yeah, and I mean, I just love, um, I love the emotional vulnerability uh, of her singing. I don't, I in particular like love singers that sing like they talk. There's not like um, affectation, like they're not trying to sound like anybody else. And they're also not trying to like force something out of their throat that isn't like just wholly natural. Um, and I think it leads to like a lot of, um, just like deeply honest moments that are just like gut-wrenching. I love that. I love when you're listening to music and you can just like, oh, you just feel the emotion punches you in the gut. And um, yeah, and you, you know, you're right there in that emotional content with, with the singer. So yeah, she's aces. She's super good at, at all those things. <laughs> and then uh, when did you come across uh, Connie Converse? Now, Connie, I, uh, again, I don't remember like when I very first discovered her, but I, I again remember the time and it was, um, I was in a, uh, a job that was not fulfilling. <laughs> That's like a kind way of putting it. Um, and I knew I was leaving, but I had to, I had to like do something with my time while I was there. Right. And sort of find little ways to escape and, I discovered her music during that time. And so I just like voraciously like went through the album and like tried to find more information about her because she's kind of a mysterious uh, person. And um, yeah, and again, I just felt like a kindred, you know, she was a kindred spirit or something like in the way that she wrote songs. Um, and uh, yeah, so she brought me a lot of like comfort uh, during that period. And I've done a little bit more research on her since. And um, 
I'm hoping to get some sheet music for some piano stuff that she wrote that would be really interesting. But yeah, Connie's, uh, Connie's a, a very interesting lady. Um, so she disappeared about like uh, 46, 47 years ago, something like that. Um, she wrote her family a letter basically saying like, let me go. And then she went and she's never been heard from since. Um, but, you know, prior, so there's some mystery around her and stuff, but like some people actually talk about her as though she's, she's very, one of the very first recorded like singer songwriters, like before that was even like considered a genre because she was active in the fifties, um, making these like home recordings. And she, she was basically like a really precocious child. She was sort of described in terms of like being a polymath and a genius, like by her immediate family, because she was just like instantly good at stuff, multi-instrumentalist, valedictorian, yada, yada. Also a little bit of an oddball compared to other people, quote unquote. I suspect she might've been on a spectrum or something like that. She was just, you know, a different sort of person. Um, but, uh, yeah, she moved to, she got like a scholarship and she ended up moving to, leaving the scholarship and moving to New York City to pursue her music. Um, she started recording, passing it out to friends, that sort of stuff. And um, she ended up getting invited to uh, uh, basically like a, um, like a, a salon, like a once a week music salon that was run by uh, the Tom and Jerry um animator uh gene uh what's his name gene deitch i think it is oh yeah 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 um and so he was like an audiophile and he like hosted this like salon where he like recorded people and apparently when she showed up he like had second thoughts uh because um she <laughs> all right how do i put this in her time period there was like you know, there was a whole lot of pressure for women to be glamorous. And she was seen as like not giving a fuck, basically. Um, and so she didn't wear makeup. She basically wore these like potato sack dresses. Like she just put her hair up in like a very like practical bun. She just like, she had, she had, she did not give a shit about what other people thought. And this was like really disruptive, like in her time period and even disruptive for Jean. Like apparently he was like, well, who does she think she is? You know, she's like, she's arrogant, et cetera. Um, and one of the, apparently one of the people that like was actually there, like described her as like, she looked like she had just walked in from milking the cows. So anyway, she tasted the stage. They let her do it anyway. She starts singing and instantly everybody's, like blown away, like, oh my God, these songs are amazing. And um, and so Jean became like a big fan of hers and helped her uh, get like on a morning show on CBS, um, which, you know, nothing really came of that. And so she kept pursuing her work um, and it just never really found her audience. So she recorded music and tried to, you know, sort of get a leg up in the music world at that time for about 10 years and then got really disheartened in about 61 and left New York. Um, it didn't, didn't really write music again, um, but the, the bulk of her songs are from the home recordings on her guitar uh, that we have, but she later moved to Harlem and started her, her musical sensibilities like changed overnight. She had a piano in her room and she started writing these like really avant-garde, like much more avant-garde um, uh, piano pieces. 
including like uh, a suite uh, based on like the myth of Cassandra, which is like this the curse of Cassandra you might like hear thrown around it's like this uh myth that's told about a woman who was like prophetic but like nobody believed her <laughs> and it ended up in war and bloodshed including her own which is kind of funny because I mean or like you know there's some parallels because Connie Converse was like clearly super ahead of her time um she when you listen to her music, like she's clearly pulling from like so many locations and synthesizing him into this totally unique thing. Like she does a little bit of like the the rhythmic stuff that um, that Sybil does, but but in a totally different way. And her her chordal choices and stuff are really interesting. Like she pulls from like blues and and early jazz, like Roma jazz. Like I'm pretty sure that she was influenced by like. Django Reinhardt and um, also as well as like parlor songs, like the type of narrative that she tells is really like of that time, like of that type of songwriting. It's this kind of very like start to finish like story. But she wrote a lot about like, uh, you know, being, being a bad fit, I guess, as a woman, like in her time period, like she has, just a song about like a roving woman, um, which basically talks about like her, uh, she likes drink and cards and she keeps finding herself like, you know, she knows that she's not supposed to like show up at these like, like poker tables or whatever, but there she is. She, you know, they just keep popping up and floating her way. And like how uh, all these like, you know, good hearted men like usher her home and like, you know, save her from herself or whatever. But um yeah, I think that's, I think that's really interesting. And she talks a lot about like unrequited love, like that's a big theme in her stuff. And uh, as far as anyone who kn like knew her uh, can tell, she never had a romantic relationship at all, like ever. Um, so anyway, that comes out in the music, I guess. Uh, so yeah, so back to, to what happened to her. So she, um, she left New York, she moved to Ann Arbor uh, where her brother was like uh, working at the college as like a professor and she started working in um, like political activism and stuff like that and got uh, basically had a had a big breakdown after a certain point and I guess maybe got more more into the drink than she had been before and at some point she just wrote um, I think this was like in I don't know, 1974, I guess it was like, she uh, wrote everyone, all of her loved ones, a letter basically saying like, um, you know, let me go and, uh, and that's it. And so she drove away. She packed everything that she had into her little Volkswagen Beetle and she's like never been seen again since. But um, in, I guess, 2009, um, a bunch of her recordings were released by her brother and, and Jean, basically her brother discovered these recordings like in an old cabinet or something and was like, hey, Jean, like, remember my sister? Like the world should probably hear these things. And so they, uh, you know, got these 18 songs and put them, on, put them on an album and put it in the world. So, and I think she's had a lot of influence on like modern, modern musicians. Like I've seen a couple other people kind of mention her influence on them. Um, so, uh, so yeah, that's, um, that's Connie Converse. She's, she's a really, really interesting lady. Um, 
and I hope to I hope to get her sheet music so I can I don't know maybe do a recording of of some of these songs that haven't been heard before that would be cool yeah so I, I guess I, I put out my first album in like 2010 and uh and I guess I didn't I don't think I really discovered these like I didn't discover Connie Converse until like maybe three years ago and then for Sybil Bear it was probably more like six something like that so there's you know there's a little bit of overlap it was more like less than them being like influences on me in a formative sort of way um it, it's more like I discovered them and I was like oh look somebody else doing something that's kind of like what I do you know not exactly because we're all doing our own thing but like I don't know I just felt like a kinship with them so have they gone on to be influential in any way or oh or... I'm sure yeah yeah I'm sure they have like I don't um when I'm writing I don't I don't sit down and think hmm I'd like to pull from you know I'd like to do this thing that that person is doing it's a much more like intuitive process for me but so I have no doubt that like their music has has uh, seeped into me through repetitive listening and and probably comes out, yeah. Uh, but it's not like you know, it's not like an an active pursuit. But yeah, yeah. Um, so for for a lot of the the artists that I talk to people about, uh, they have pretty lengthy discographies. But yeah. For both of these artists, they're very, very concise. Yep. Um, do you think that their impact would be greater if they, they had a much larger discography? Do you, do you think that what, what discography they have is impactful enough? I don't know, because it's, it could be one of those things where like, the collection of the songs that are available are just like like such gems such perfect examples that like if if they kept producing albums like and four albums into it they like got really into disco and like you know things just went off the rails or whatever like it's possible that that could have sullied like the the early stuff um uh you know i guess we'll never know but if they had had multiple records that that might indicate that they'd found some sort of audience uh which so maybe that would have led to like more more influence just because of more like exposure like early on, um, yeah. Uh, I'm you know I would love to have more of their songs, but I'm really happy with the ones that we have, so it's okay. <laughs> I I'm guessing just based on their music that both of them. Uh, sort of played intuitively and really, um, uh, I don't know, like just had an ear that liked something that was like a little bit different. So I like to play a lot with like half steps and like interesting resolutions and also like alternating between like different, um, uh, you know, like cut time and regular time just to create sort of like interesting like pushes and pulls. And I like, uh, you know, I like weird chords I like, you know, like what people would call jazzy chords, you know, or whatever. I like, I grew up like being pretty obsessed with like klezmer music and, um, and Django Reinhardt and um, like Delta Blues and um, 
and also like Stephen Sondheim I was like a theater kid like a really hardcore theater kid I have a little PTSD from it but um uh I was really into Sondheim who's like an incredible like wordsmith and also has like you know an interesting ear like in regard to to rhythm, rhythmic choices and and chordal choices and all that sort of stuff. I, I basically just like, I like weirdos and I like people kind of expressing themselves in like um, the most authentic way possible. And I think that both of these women like really do that. So like, cause like when I started making music I really wasn't trying to, I really, I wasn't good enough of a musician to like try to emulate anybody else. Like I, you know, I was a latecomer to playing and um, and although I'd absorbed lots of music and I really loved it and I'd written songs since I was a little kid, I'd never like had the aspirations of like being a rock star or, or like whatever. So I, um, I didn't grow up like playing along with my favorite albums or anything. Uh, it was much more of a just like, oh, I'm going to sit here with this instrument and like, and this song comes out, you know, um, much more of a discovery sort of thing. Uh, and so, yeah, I related, I relate to both of them for that reason. Um, and also, you know, there's, uh, there's lyrical stuff that uh, I think all three of us kind of do, like kind of alternating between like a little bit of stream of consciousness and like metaphorical stuff or allegorical stuff. And uh, yeah, and there's just an honesty that both of them have that, that I very much relate to. Like, I'm not, um, when something is as stripped down as, as that is, there's like literally nowhere to hide. It is you and the songwriting and the instrument, and that is it. And there is something like, for me, both art and music are about like connections like with other human beings. So when there's like that little of a veil, um, it's like the best way for me to show myself like fully. Uh, nothing to hide behind. So I very much relate to that with these two ladies also. Is there something that you wish that a general audience, knowing that they, they haven't, they, they never reached a, a broader audience, but is there something about these artists that you wish people could understand that a general public couldn't understand about them? I mean, first off, I would just like people to hear them, which was like one of the reasons that I chose them. Cause like, I, I very much doubt that most people have heard of them. So I would love to increase their listeners. Um, but the thing I'd like them to like, keep in mind as they're listening is like the, the context, like the time period that these women wrote in. And um, yeah, and just, thinking about like the themes of like a woman's life, like in those time periods and like how these songs are like a beautiful little snapshot of that. They offer us a glimpse into that uh, in a way that isn't commonly offered. Um, and I think it's, it's informative on a lot of levels. So I just really hope that people like looking in old cap, I, I hope that people continue to like look in old cabinets and like clean out garages and like, and storage units and like find these gems for us and like find find the resources to share them uh, because you know since distribution has been democratized like the opportunity for people to hear these folks is like greater than ever and um, I feel there's like probably a wealth of like uh, music out there that like was probably like crazy ahead of its time um, that could be you know um, 
wonderful to listen to now. I'm thinking of like Michael Yonkers as like another one who was like virtually undiscovered and is like so ahead of his time. Like you listen to his music now and it's like, he sounds like, like pre-talking heads, pre like, you know, he's recording all this stuff in the sixties and he's like clearly got this like kind of like, uh, it's had sort of an atonal aesthetic. He like, he made his own guitars and stuff and they had like weird, weird chordal relationships. And, you know, again, like, like somebody to just like being, being themselves and kind of being a weirdo in a good way. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Oh yeah. Thank, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm, I'm happy to, to sing their praises and, um, and, and to just talk about like what, what their music means to me. So yeah, I appreciate the opportunity. Heather's music can be found at boneandbell.com. The Operative is produced in conjunction with Radio Nope. For more information and a complete show listing, visit radionope.com. And to find all of our past episodes, visit theoperative.bandcamp.com. Thank you.